I'm delighted that you're here this evening, and I appreciate the fact that you are present, ready to listen to the Word of God, and I hope that you've brought your Bible with you and eager to study with us. We're going to be talking about things that have to do with serving God and going to heaven in the after while, and I hope that is your interest tonight. Tomorrow evening, we'll be talking about the blood of Jesus Christ. And then on Tuesday, will only those in the church of Christ be saved? Perhaps you've been asked that question or you have that question in your mind. How do I answer that question? That'll be our study on Tuesday evening. And Wednesday, we'll talk about Acts 2, the conversion of the 3,000. And then on uh, Thursday, we'll talk about grace, faith, and works. And then Friday, we'll talk about the new birth. Tonight, we want to talk about Bible authority. As we talk about Bible authority, there are some questions that need to be addressed. Just what does authority have to do with religion in the first place? Do they relate together somehow? And how do we know what is authorized? How do I know that this practice is authorized and yet another practice is not authorized? How do I know the difference? And after all, just what is Bible authority? Those we seek to answer in our study tonight. And so we want to talk about authority. This is a simple study of how authority works in religion. And so we want to begin with the fundamentals of authority. Let's start with this. Let's talk about the question of what is authority. What are we talking about when we talk about authority? Well, the English word authority simply means this, the power to command, to enforce laws, to exact obedience, to determine, or to judge. When Jesus said... All authority is given unto me both in heaven and on earth. That word that is used in Matthew chapter 28 simply means the power of rule, the power of one whose will and commands must be obeyed by others. And so we're talking about the authority that God has over man, and yet at the same time we're talking about authority that God has given to man. So let's distinguish between two things. Let's talk first of all about inherent authority. There is such a thing as inherent authority. This is authority that one has because of who he is. God, because he is God, has inherent authority. I have inherent authority over my money. So the money that I have, you don't have any authority over spending my money, but I have inherent authority because it's my money. But there is such a thing as delegated authority. This is authority that is received from one who has inherent authority. For example, God gives authority to man. And so God tells man he can or must do something, and therefore man has authority. I might give you some of my money and ask you to spend it for me, and so now you have authority to spend my money only because I, having the inherent authority, have delegated to you to spend that. Now, why do we make that distinction? Well, because tonight we're going to be talking about authority in religion and there will be times we talk about God having authority. We're talking about inherent authority. But there will be other times we talk about man being authorized or we have authority or the church is not authorized or is authorized. We're talking about delegated authority. Let's keep that distinction in mind as we go on. Now, with that in mind, let's go secondly and talk about the fact that God has authority over man. That ought to be understood by all, and yet there are some who do not fully understand the fact that God has authority over man. Let's begin with this. Let's understand that God, because He is God, has authority over man. Let's be reminded of the fact that He is God. In Exodus chapter 3 and in verse 14, when Moses asked, God, who shall I say has sent me? 
And God's response was, tell them the I am has sent thee. That is an affirmation of the eternal nature of God. And so be God, because he is eternal and he is God, has authority over man. In Revelation 4 and verse 8, God is said to be the Almighty. So because he is eternal, because he is Almighty, in other words, because he is God, he has authority over man. Furthermore, God is the creator of all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 and verse 1. The Hebrew writer said in chapter 3 and in verse 4, He who made all things is God. So God, because He is the creator of all things, He has authority over all of His creation. Let's add to that the fact that God is infinite in His wisdom. You remember the passage in Isaiah 55. God said, My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is infinite in His wisdom. Let's add another point to that, and that is that Jesus said He had all authority both in heaven and on earth. So again, God, because He is God, has authority over man. That being true, that means that whatever God has said, His Word becomes authoritative. If I have authority over something, that means my Word is authoritative over that matter. My money, for example, as I mentioned a moment ago. So let's be reminded of the fact that the Word of God is authoritative. We talked this morning about how the Word of God is inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Here's how authoritative it is. Let's consider the fact that a violation of the Word that God has uttered constitutes sin. I might give a law, but violating what law I give doesn't constitute sin. But when you violate a law of God, that constitutes sin, 1 John 3 and in verse 4. Add to that the fact that the Word of God can be taught with all authority. Paul told Titus, these things I command and teach with all authority. I might write something, and you could go teach what I write, but you can't teach it with all authority. But I can take the Word that God has uttered and teach it with all authority. That tells me the Word of God is authoritative. Furthermore, we cannot alter nor change anything about the Word of God. We cannot add to it, nor can we take anything away from it. And furthermore, Jesus said, the words that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day, John 12 and verse 48. So what I've learned thus far is, I understand what authority is, but I also understand that God has authority because he is God and his word then becomes authoritative. Now with those two principles in mind, let's add a third. Let's talk about the need for authority in religion. And let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11 and in verse 3. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, I read something about the order of authority. There is something about the order of authority. Here's what the text says. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now here's what I see in that text. There is a system, or there is an order of authority. This text tells me that we have woman, and man is head over woman. I learn, furthermore, that Christ, the Son, is head over man. And I learned that God the Father is head over Christ. And so we could talk about what authority is involved. What authority does man have over woman? What authority does Christ have over man? And what authority does the Father have over the Son? I'm not interested in that at this juncture. I'm just seeing that there is an order of authority. And since there is an order of authority, we must have authority in religion. That's what we're trying to establish. Let's consider the fact that man is not his own authority. 
In Jeremiah chapter 10 and in verse 23, it is not in man that walketh to direct his own footsteps. It is not for me to decide what I want to do and when I want to do it and how I want to do that. I am to follow the authority of the scriptures. You remember Proverbs chapter 14 and in verse 12, there's a way that seems right unto man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Now those are simple matters. But what we've established thus far is we know what authority is. I know that God, because he is God, has authority over man. And furthermore, I know there's a need for authority. But let's talk about the fact that we must have Bible authority for all that we do in religion. That we must have Bible authority. So let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, if you will. And I want us to notice the point made in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 8. There is a parallel drawn between the Old Testament economy and that of the New Testament. Meaning by that, that the Old Testament here in our text in Hebrews chapter 8 and in verse 5 who served the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. We'll come back to the verse in just a second. Did you notice that he said it is a copy, or that is it a type, or a shadow, or a model, if you please, of the greater to come? Now, what did God say about the tabernacle? God had said, see that you make all things according to the pattern. Now, here's the point. In building the tabernacle, which was a copy or a shadow or a type or a model, if you please, of the greater to come, God said in making that model, it has to be made according to the pattern. God had a pattern. The point being, if the the copy or the shadow or the type had to be made according to the pattern, how much more so the real and the true? Let's illustrate. Let's suppose that you're going to build a new house. And in the process of doing that, you go to the architect and he draws plans for the new house. And you tell him exactly what you want and you get them all drawn up. And then you say, I would like to see what this house is going to look like. So you go to a model maker and you tell the model maker, I want you to make me a model to scale just like the pattern. Well, what do you mean just like the pattern? Well, if it's a two-story house, I want it to be a two-story house. If it has a front door in the center of the house, I want the front door in the center of the house. If you're facing the house and there's a garage on the left end of the house, I want a garage on the left end of the house. If it has three windows across the second floor, I want three windows across the second floor. And as you're facing the house, if it has a uh, chimney on the right end, I want a chimney on the right end. And if it has a 512 pitch, I want it to have a 512 pitch. I want it just like the pattern. And when you like that, you say, I like the way that looks. And then you get your contractor out on the job site and you say, now, I want you to build me a house, but I really don't care how you build it. Put the, put the chimney anywhere you want, or I don't even have to have one. I don't care where the front door is. I don't care how many windows. I don't care if it has a garage or not. You build it any way you wish. That doesn't make sense. If the model has to be made according to the pattern, how much more so the real and the true has to be made according to the pattern. And so the point I'm learning from Hebrews 8 in verse 5, if that which was the type and the shadow of the model has to be made according to the pattern, how much more so the real and the true. God has a pattern that we must follow, therefore we must have authority. Let's consider Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 17. We must do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what our text says. That whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father through Him. Now this text tells me that we must do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, what does it mean to do something in the name of another? Well, you could find in a commentary somewhere what that might mean. You could guess what that means. Here's your best commentary on Colossians 3, Acts 4. So you might note in your Bibles, Acts 4, when somebody talks to you about Bible authority, and you, they say, what does it mean to do something in the name of another? Cite Acts 4 and verse 7. When the apostles were called before the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin said, when they had set them in their midst, by what power, or here's another way of wording that, or by what name have you done this? What are they asking? They're asking, by what authority are you preaching Here's how they worded it. They didn't use the word authority. They said, by what power? That means authority. Or another way of wording that, by what name have you done this? So to do something in the name of another means by their power or by their authority. So to do all things in the name of Christ means by the authority of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Where is the Bible authority for that? Remember Acts 4 and in verse 7. If a police officer came to your house and he knocked on the door and said, open up in the name of the law. What does it mean? Because he mentioned the word law, that demands that you open up. I could come to your house and shout law. Does that mean you have to open up? No, it's not because he said law. It's because there is authority. He has a court order in his hand that you need to open up in the name of the law. It means by the authority of the law, I have a court order that you need to open up and come out. That's what that means. Well, let's consider another passage. In Second John and in verse 9. We're still talking about the fact that we must have Bible authority for all that we do in religion. We must abide within the doctrine of Christ. Here is what our text says. <clears throat> the text says, whoever goeth onward and abides not in the doctrine, does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, does not have God. But he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Perhaps the American standard will enhance that for you. When it says, whosoever goeth onward and abideth not in the teaching of Christ. The point is that we are to abide within the confines of the doctrine of Christ. That inspired will of God, the revealed will of God we talked about this morning. We are to abide within the confines of the doctrine of Christ. If our doctrine or our teaching goes outside the realm of the doctrine of Christ, we do not have relationship with God. And so we must have Bible authority for all that we do. Let's consider the fact that Christ is the head of the church. Which means the church takes all direction from Christ. He has all authority both in heaven and on earth. So both in Colossians and in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 5, Colossians 1 and 18. Jesus is the head of the church. If he is the head of the church, he is the one that gives it direction. We have authority. We must have authority from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's a similar point we made this morning. As we talked about, is one faith as good as another? And that is, if we do not have to have Bible authority, then we can do anything we want to do in religion. When someone says, you know what, we do, we do a lot of things without authority. And I hear that among brethren sometimes. We do a lot of things that we're not authorized to do. Well, if we can act without authority, we can do anything we want to do in the name of religion. If not, the question then is why not? All right, we understand what authority is. We know God has authority over man. We know there's a need for authority and that we must have Bible authority. Let's talk about how Bible authority is established. How do I know what God has authorized? How do I know how the Word of God teaches me? How do I know what God wants me to do? And how do I know that this practice, which is not specifically mentioned in the Bible, how do I know that's still authorized? 
And here is something else not mentioned in the Bible, and that's not authorized. How do I know the distinction? How do we determine that? Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 13, if you will. Jesus is teaching here on love. And I want you to notice three things that Jesus said about love. A new commandment I give to you, you love one another as I have loved you, that you should love one another. By this we'll all know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And that was a simple teaching on love that I'm commanding you to teach others. As I have loved you, you need to love one another. And then men are going to conclude from that that you are my disciples. Jesus just used three avenues of teaching, three methods of teaching. What were they? First of all, he said, a new commandment I give to you. That is, here is a direct command or direct statement from God. You are to love one another because I commanded you to love. That's one method that God uses to authorize and teach is by direct command or direct statement. But that's not all he said. That you should love one another as I have loved you. That is an approved example. You don't get any more approved than the example of Christ. He said, here is my example. You are to love one another like I have loved you. I gave you an approved example of that. But there's something else that goes with that. And notice in verse 35, by this will all know that you are my disciples. Here is a necessary inference that's to be, that comes from when people see you loving one another like I have loved you. So I'm giving you a direct command. I gave you an approved example. And then here will be a necessary conclusion that is drawn when men see that you're loving one another. Jesus just talked about command, example, and inference, didn't he? And I want to tell you, we're living in a time of the new hermeneutics concept. Where among brethren, that concept of command, example, and inference, those who ridicule that call us the CEI brethren. It's not a reference to the bookstore. <laughs> that is a reference to, it's a, it's a downplay. You, you, you fellows are just a bunch of the, the CEI brethren who talk about command, example, and inference. And what we need is a new hermeneutic that just appeals to direct statement from God. E examples are not binding. And the Bible does not teach by necessary inference. And they've forgotten what Jesus taught here in John chapter 13. But I want us to go to Acts 15. This was the passage that was read a few moments ago. As I mentioned this morning, if there's only one passage that you want to grab a hold of and you say, I want to get one passage to take home with me, I would suggest you get Acts 15 down in your mind. And if you don't have some things marked in Acts chapter 15, when you talk to somebody about Bible authority, you need to get familiar with Acts 15. So I encourage you to get your Bible, maybe a pencil, mark some things in the margin of Acts 15. This is in the context of the Jerusalem discussion, as I like to call it. Some call it the Jerusalem conference, but the Jerusalem discussion over circumcision. And the question is, is circumcision binding? Must we tell people to be circumcised in order to be saved, or can one be saved without being circumcised? So beginning at verse 6, the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. The purpose of this is not so that they can gather some information, let's take a vote and see how many think it's binding, how many think it's not, and whatever the vote is, then that's what our decision. There is no voting here. They're trying to determine what is the revelation of God. Now, when they get through, let's get ahead of ourselves and go to verse 28. When they come to their conclusion, their conclusion was, this is the conclusion that was driven by the Holy Spirit, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This conclusion was driven by the Holy Spirit. How did they know what the Holy Spirit thought about this question? 
There were three things that were said. There were three speeches, at least, that were made. You'll notice beginning at verse 7 through verse 11, Peter stands up and he makes a speech. At verse 12, Paul and Barnabas stand up and they make a speech. Verses 13 to 21, James stands up and he gives a speech. And let's see what they said. Let's start at the end and work backwards. James stands up and he gives a speech in verses 13 to 21, and he appealed to a direct statement from the revealed will of God, and this time it was from Amos 9. Remember the question, can a Gentile be saved without being a proselyte, becoming a Jew, being circumcised? Let's see what he says, beginning at verse 13. And after these And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how that God first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this words, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. Now, verse 16. It is a quotation from Amos 9. Look at your center reference column. That's taken from Amos 9. What does Amos 9 say, beginning at verse 16? After this, I'll return and will build the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, or build its ruins, and I will set it up. Are you reading with me at verse 17? So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. What do you mean the rest of mankind? Even all the Gentiles. Yes, the Gentiles were mentioned by name. Even all the Gentiles who should be called by my name. Yes, Gentiles can be saved without becoming Jews. Without circumcision. James, what are you saying? I'm saying there is a direct statement from God about this question that Gentiles could be saved. Amos 9. Well, before that speech was made, Paul and Barnabas stood up at verse 12. They appealed to an approved example. The multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Their speech is not recorded by the summary thereof. Now, remember where this is. This is Acts 15. Look back two chapters. Look at Acts 13 and 14. That is what is recorded as the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas had been out on the first missionary journey converting people. What they didn't do is require circumcision. How do we know? How do we know that God approved of that? Look back at verse 12. Look at verse 12. The many wonders and miracles that God worked among them. So the point is we went among the Gentiles and we didn't require circumcision. Paul, how do you know God approved of that? Look at the miracles and wonders and signs we worked on that missionary journey. That showed God gave his stamp of approval to that. So here is a direct command of God or the statement of God. Here is an approved apostolic example. God gave his stamp of approval to that. That's how we know circumcision isn't binding. The first speech that was made beginning at verse 7 was this. Peter appealed to the events of the household of Cornelius... As a case where there was a necessary inference. Look at verse 7. Peter rose and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now stop there and just for a moment get our bearing. He's talking about the conversion of the household of Cornelius, Acts 10. That is recorded in Acts 10, retold in Acts 11, and retold again in Acts 15. Three accounts of that. We'll talk about that in a moment. What happened at the household of Cornelius? So God who knows their hearts acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit even as he did unto us. Holy Spirit fell on the household of Cornelius. Now Peter, what did you necessarily infer from that? 
Look at verse 9. And made no distinction between them. How would you know, Peter, they made no distinction between them and us? How would you know that? Back to verse 8. Giving them the Holy Spirit even as he did unto us. And made no distinction between them and us, purifying their hearts by faith. Where did he get that conclusion? That was a conclusion that was necessarily driven by the fact the household of Cornelius had received Holy Spirit baptism. Let's go back to Acts chapter 10. And that's exactly what Peter had concluded. Not just over here at this, this meeting in Acts 15, but that was the conclusion he drew back over in Acts 10. Let's see what he said. Look at Acts 10. Verse 45 says that the Holy Spirit fell upon them as, and upon the Gentiles also. Now verse 40, 47, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized who receive the Holy Spirit just as we have? Peter's conclusion was, when I saw the Holy Spirit falling on the household of Cornelius, I conclude they can be saved just like Jews. He had already concluded that. And let's go to Acts chapter 11. When the brethren at Jerusalem found out about this, they called him on the carpet and he had to retell the story by order. And he did. And basically their question, and I'm paraphrasing in Acts chapter 11, was, Peter, what were you doing over at the, at, among Gentiles? What were you thinking? What were you thinking going over and, and, and baptizing Gentiles? What are you talking about? And he said, here's what happened. He talked about the vision that he had. He talked about the Holy Spirit falling on the household of Cornelius. And when he got through telling that, if God gave them the same gift, even as, I'm reading Acts eleven seventeen, as he did unto us, who was I that I could withstand God? He said, that was the conclusion I drew. Now, verse 18, are you reading with me? When they, that is, the brethren at Jerusalem, heard this, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then is God granted to the Gentiles repentance and the life. They necessarily inferred from that very account, Gentiles can be saved without being circumcised. You see what happened in Acts chapter 15? They appealed to necessary inference, approved example, and a direct statement from God, and concluded, verse 28 and 29, that this is what the Holy Spirit wants. How'd they do that? By looking at command, example, and necessary inference. Now, let's illustrate that with the Lord's Supper. Do you realize our very observance of the Lord's Supper that we do every Lord's Day is based upon command, example, and inference? The very reason we observe the Lord, why do we observe the Lord's Supper this morning? It is because a direct statement from God. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul quotes the Lord where he said, this do in remembrance of me. That is a direct command of God. So when somebody says, why do y'all observe the Lord's Supper? Because we're commanded to. We have a direct command of God. There's the Bible authority for having the Lord's Supper. Well, what about this question of the time of observance? I sometimes hear men come to the table and they'll say, we were commanded to observe the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. Where? Where? There's not a passage that commands you to do on the first day of the week. It just commands you to observe that. So wh where do we have the Bible authority to do it on the first day of the week and only on the first day of the week? You remember that for a moment. Think about that just for a moment. And when somebody comes along and says, you know what, we're, the only thing that's binding on us is direct commands. What that means is that we can observe the Lord's Supper on Saturday night because... The time of observance, the only thing we have about the first day of the week is an approved example. 
When the disciples came together upon the first day of the week to break bread, Paul preached unto them. How do I know God approved of that? Do you remember Eutychus falling out the window and the miracle being performed? Remember that? God gave his stamp of approval to that first day of the week meeting. There is not a command about a first day of the week meeting. There is, a command, there is an approved apostolic example of that. And that's the only example we have. We don't have an example on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, or Thursday, or Saturday night. The first day of the week is the only example we have. Now, what about the frequency of observance? Do we partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week, or do we do it once a quarter, once a year? How often do we do that? You say, well, we're commanded every first... No, we're not. Where is that command? You won't find that anywhere. The only way we know anything about the frequency is necessarily inferred from Acts 20 and verse 7. That just as, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, remember that? Exodus 20. Meant every time the Sabbath rolled around. So likewise, on the first day of the week means every time the first day of the week rolls around. So our very observance of the Lord's Supper is based upon command, example, and necessary inference. When we throw necessary inference and approved examples out, then we're going to have the Lord's Supper on Saturday night. If not, why not? And if we throw that out, then we can have it just once a year, once a quarter. If not, why not? Now, here's something else I want us to talk about before we're through. And that is, we know how Bible authority is established. Let's talk about making application of Bible authority. We'll spend the rest of our time there, and the lesson is yours. There are three things I want to share with you about that, and here's the first. I want to talk about the difference between generic and specific authority. While we need to understand that we need Bible authority, we need to understand the distinction in generic and specific authority. When God authorizes something and a command is left in the generic, we can choose any specific within that generic. Let's take, for example, building the ark. God tells Noah to build an ark of gopher wood. Had God left that in the generic wood, build an ark of wood. Noah could choose any kind of wood that he wished. He could have used pine. He could have used walnut and cedar, gopher, hickory. He could have used any of those woods. Because God left it in the generic, if God had done that, he would be at liberty to choose any kind of wood. But I want to suggest to you that when a command is specific, that we cannot choose any other specific within that generic. And the fact that God specified gopher wood, that eliminates the use of cedar and oak and walnut, pine and hickory, etc. Now, some make a play and say, well, you know what, that the, the command never excludes anything, it only includes. Well, that's a play on words. Well, then it only includes gopher and it doesn't include anything else. We come to the same conclusion. And so the point is that there is a distinction in generic and specific authority. Now, let's see how that works. If I take my money and give it to you and ask you to go buy me a cola and I leave it in the generic cola, you are at liberty to buy any cola. You could buy Pepsi Cola, RC Cola, or Coca-Cola, couldn't you? But the fact that I specify a Pepsi-Cola with my money, you're only authorized to buy me a Pepsi-Cola, aren't you? Because I specified what I wanted. The fact that I've specified, it eliminates any other choice within that generic. Let's see how that works with other things. We already illustrated that with the building of the ark. Let's take another example. Let's take the, the washing of Naaman and the case of his leprosy in 2 Kings chapter 5. God told him to go by, the, by Elisha. He told him to go dip seven times in the river of Jordan. Now, had God said, go wash in a river, 
the Jordan River would have been fine. The Abana and the Farper River would have been fine. In fact, didn't Naaman raise a question about that? Thought they were better rivers, he said. He well understood that when God specified the Jordan, that eliminated him finding any other river than the Jordan. When God specifies, we're not at liberty to choose any other specific. Let's take another example. And let's take the case of the offering of Leviticus 14. Had God left that in the generic and said, offer an animal, a lamb could have been chosen, a goat could have been chosen, I suppose a a camel could have been chosen, a heifer could have been chosen. But the fact that God specified a lamb for that offering, that eliminates choosing any other animal for that offering, doesn't it? Well, let's consider another. When it comes to the matter of praising God, in Ephesians 5 and in verse 19, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. If God had left that in the generic scene, man would have been at liberty to choose any kind of, or or the generic music, man could have chosen any kind of music. But the fact that God specified singing, that eliminates choosing any other kind of music. Let's see how that works. There's a number of things it might be said with reference to music. If God had said, make music unto me. We could sing. I suppose we could use instrumental music because God said make music. We could do something else. We could maybe hum. Uh, We could whistle. If God said make music, we could stand and say, "Let's, let's whistle the closing hymn. Or let's hum the closing hymn. But the fact that God specified singing, Ephesians 5 and 19, that eliminates all the others within that generic. I think there's been some brethren who came along. In fact, I know there's been some brethren who, who understood instrumental music is not authorized, but they don't understand this principle of how authority works. There have been among us a couple of churches that decided they're going to hymn the closing hymn. So let's stand and let's just hum. I said hymn. Hum the closing hymn. And so let's all hum uh, just as I am or amazing grace. That is no more authorized than instrumental music because God specified singing. And that eliminates all other within that generic. But let's go a step further. I said there were three things. Here's the second. Let's talk about the difference in an aid and an addition. If we talk about Bible authority, we need to understand the difference in an aid and an addition. When something aids a command, that just simply expedites the command. An aid is something that we're using where we're doing nothing more than what God said and does not constitute any additional elements. We'll illustrate that in a moment. An addition involves another element being added, and this time we're doing more than what God said. There's a difference in an aid and an addition. Now keep this principle in mind, that an addition involves another element being added. Let's go back to the Pepsi-Cola. I send you to the store and ask you to buy me a Pepsi. You might use an aid. You might use your car to go to the store. You might use a sack to carry that. You might keep a cooler that you might keep it cool till you get it to me. When you do that, you're doing nothing more than what I said, are you? But suppose with my money, you buy Sprite and RC or some candy. Now we have an additional element added and we have an addition to my command to you. You understand that? Let's take some other commands. Let's take the case of eating bread of 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord's Supper. We might use plates as we have here on the table. We've used this morning and will again tonight. We might have a table to set it on. I suppose we could set it on the floor. I suppose we could do without the plates and just set the bread on the floor, couldn't we? Nothing wrong with that. 
But O's are simply using AIDS, and we're doing nothing more than what God said. But suppose that we decide we want to use blackberry jam, or we want to put beef or cola on the Lord's table. Now we have another element added, which constitutes an addition to the Word of God. Let's go a step further. Let's take the command to baptize. We might use an aid. We might use a baptistry, as you have here. We might use a heater, as I assume you have, to heat the water. When we do that, we're doing nothing more than what God said. That's just expediting the command. But suppose we add sprinkling. Now we have another action added, and we have another element added to the Word of God. That constitutes an addition to the Word of God. Let's take the command to build an ark in Genesis 6. Noah might use a tool, and he's doing nothing more than what God said. I suppose he could have used an animal. He could use some of the elephants to drag the gopher wood to the building site. And when he does that, he's doing nothing more than what God said. God said, make me an ark of gopher wood. But suppose he decides, I like oak or I like cedar. Or I like hickory. And he begins to add that into it. Now we have another element added. And now we have an addition to the word of God. Let's take the contribution of 1 Corinthians 16. We might use a basket or we might use a cow. We used baskets this morning. We're doing nothing more than what God said. We're giving up on the first day of the week. When the money is taken up, we could put that into an account. We could put it in a mason jar somewhere. We could just collect it in in some of the men's hands and stick the money in a drawer in the back. We're doing nothing more than what God said. But when we take that collection up on Monday or Saturday, now we have an additional day added, and now we have an addition to the Word of God. This come to the command to sing, Ephesians 5 and verse 19. We might use books, as you have here tonight. We might use projection to put the songs on the screen. We might use a pitch pipe or tuning fork. And we're doing nothing more than what God said. But when we hum or we add instrumental music, we have another element added, and now we have an addition to the Word of God. Let's understand the difference in age and addition. The third thing I said I wanted to share with you, there are three things, here's the third, is let's talk about the silence of God. There quite often are those who say, God did not say not to. And you fill in the rest of that sentence. God didn't say not to do this. God did not say not to have instrumental music. God did not say that we shouldn't baptize babies. And since God did not say not to, then we are at liberty to do that is the thought. Or someone may say, there is no passage that says thou shalt not. Or they may raise the question, where is the passage that says it's wrong? The common thought about the silence of God is, the silence of God gives permission. When God was silent, that grants us permission to do whatever we want to do in religion. Consider 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. The text tells us that we're not to think of men or go beyond that which is written. That which is written, that is, if I'm going beyond that which is written, I am not respecting the silence of the Scriptures. Colossians 2 condemns will worship. The King James words it that way. Will worship is that which is according to the will or the commandments of men. Vine says that will worship is voluntary adapted worship, whether, get this, unbidden or forbidden. How true. I want to suggest to you that any passage that says we must have authority says we must respect the silence of God. Remember my illustration? I gave you money and asked you to buy me a Pepsi. The fact, if you're going to respect my authority, 
means that you understand you must have authority for what you do and you respect my silence. More about that in just a second. I want you to understand these two mindsets. In every major division that there has been in the church over the years, going back to, let's just go back uh, to the 1800s, let's start there. There's been divisions even before that. But back in the 1800s when the issue of the Missionary Society and instrumental music arose in the church in 1849 and 1859. Those were the dates when the church divided over those two issues. Prior to that, there had developed two mindsets. Part of what contributed to that, those mindsets, was a softening of the stand and the preaching like we're doing this week, and David does, of hammering around on Bible authority and Bible principles and first principles. There had been a softening of that message. And the two mindsets said this. One mindset said, the silence of God is permissive. What does that mean? We're at liberty to do what is not condemned. There was another mindset that said the silence of God is prohibitive. And what that means is we're forbidden to act without authority. And naturally, as brethren were going in separate directions, developing two mindsets, instrumental music, when it was introduced in the church, we're not talking about in denominationalism, we're talking about it Midway, Kentucky in 1849. When it was introduced, or 1859, when it was introduced, that was a symptom of the problem. The Missionary Society the same way. No wonder there was division when it came about. Because there was a different mindset. Now, which one of those is true? Well, let's turn to Hebrews 7 and verse 14. This is talking about our Lord being a priest. It is evident that our Lord arose out of Judah. That is, he came from the tribe of Judah. Do you remember chapter 8 said if he were on earth, he couldn't be a priest? Remember that? If Jesus were on earth, he could not be a priest. Why? Because he came out of the tribe of Judah. Of which tribe? Are you reading with me? Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. What do you learn from that? If God spoke nothing concerning priesthood, concerning the tribe of Judah, that means the silence of God is not permissive. It rather is prohibitive. I might list a number of things that God did not say not to do. God did not say to not have ice cream on the Lord's table. Did he? Do you remember where that passage is? So when someone says, you know what, it didn't say we can't have instrumental music. It didn't say we couldn't put ice cream on the Lord's Supper. Did it? Does that mean we can have that? God did not say, do not handle snakes as an act of worship. There are churches that do that. There's not a passage, don't do that. Thou shalt not handle snakes in worship. There is not a passage that says, do not have church-sponsored sports. There is not a passage that says, do not... Offer a bull or a lamb as a sacrifice. Why don't we build an altar right here and bring a bull in and sacrifice it? You know where the passage says that thou shalt not offer a bull? I don't remember that. The Bible does not say not to count beads as an act of worship. Or have mechanical instruments of music as an act of worship. Or the church be involved in secular business. And that's just the beginning of the list. Let's go back to my money. Suppose someone sends you to the store and gives you this $20 bill and says, I want you to buy me a gallon of milk and a box of cereal. Now, that involves inherent authority and delegated authority. It involves inherent authority because the one who owns the money has inherent authority to spend that money and dictate how it's to be spent. When you were given the money, now you have delegated authority to spend it on a gallon of milk and a box of cereal. 
How do you reason when you get to the store? Do you say, you know what? They didn't say don't buy candy. I think I'll buy some of that. And they didn't say don't buy some meat. And they didn't say don't buy colas. And they didn't say don't buy some magazines. I think I'll buy some of oil. You understand how you would reason. You would recognize, you know what? They only authorized me to buy milk and cereal. And that's all I'm going to buy with their money. Because I'm not in authority with this money. I'm spending someone else's money. If we can understand that with buying milk and cereal. And a mere $20, we ought to be able to understand it when it comes to application of the Word of God. I want to spend just a moment in the closing talking about where does Bible authority apply. And when I'm talking about that, it applies to what we do in worship, whether we sing or play. Bible authority comes to play. That's why we need to know these principles of Bible authority. Because when the question of what, what do we do in worship, can we play instruments in worship or can we hum? Suppose one of the song leaders decides, let's hum. The closing hymn. Are you going to object? Are you going to go to the elders and say, I don't like that. We were unscriptural in that. It has to do with what we do in worship. Not only does it have to do with what we do in worship, it has to do with what we do as a church. Can we take money out of the church treasury and sponsor a college, for example? Or some kind of benevolent organization. Can we do that? That's what the church divided over in the 1950s and 60s. You need to be familiar with those issues. Bible authority applies to who has a right to remarry. You know, this, this controversy that's been going on for the past 30 years on marriage, divorce, and remarriage comes back to the same principle of Bible authority. It's the same issue as we had over instrumental music. It's just a different symptom. It has to do with Bible authority. Who, who does the Bible authorize to remarry? And if I can show where Scripture authorizes it, they have a right to remarry. If I can't prove from Scripture they have a right, they don't have a right. Where's the book, chapter, and verse? Marriage, divorce, and remarriage is a question of Bible authority. Just like instrumental music was. Then where else it applies? It applies to the role of elders and deacons. What they do. What authority they have. When elders take on more authority than the scriptures give them. They're acting without Bible authority. That's no different than using instrumental music. Or when they're not functioning as God authorizes them. That's no different than practicing something unscriptural. Now. The last thing I want to share with you is this. Sometimes we learn the principle, but not the application. Sometimes we learn the application, not the principle. If we understand the principle of Bible authority, but we don't know how to apply it, it doesn't do us any good. And if we learn the application that Bible authority drives, but we didn't understand the principle behind it, we're no better off. How so? I'm convinced some of those who are practicing unscriptural things in the church. Let's, let's go back to the 1950s and 60s. Some, some of the men who came out of that time, I mean, come through that time, I guess is a better way to word that. Some of the men who came through that issue and was on the wrong side of that, the unscriptural side, they learned the principle of Bible authority and could preach it as well as any of us, maybe even better than us. I've heard some of them preach on Bible authority, and they can hammer down on book, chapter, and verse, command, example, and inference, and they can hammer down on Bible authority. What they didn't understand is how that principle made application to the things they were doing. They've got the principle. They just don't have the application. Now, there's some of us who've learned the application, but we didn't learn the principle. What do we mean? I think there's, this is true among us. That there's some who've learned the principle that instrumental music is wrong, but we don't have a clue why it's wrong. 
And we know it's wrong to support a college out of the church treasury. And we don't support uh, orphans' homes. And we don't send to these human institutions. And we don't have a church kitchen. But we don't understand. I have a clue as to why that's wrong. And so we've heard preaching instrumental music is wrong. And we know it's wrong. And I'm going to oppose that. Why do you oppose that? If you don't get the principle behind the application, when the next issue comes along, divorce and remarriage or some other issue, you may be on the wrong side because you didn't understand the principle behind it. May God help us to understand not only the principle, but the application thereof. What have we seen tonight? Bible authority. What authority is, God has authority over man, the need for authority. We must have Bible authority in all that we do, how it's established by command, example, and inference. And then we've talked about applying it, understanding the difference in generic and specific, aids and additions, and respecting the silence of the Scriptures. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins and acknowledge your faith and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?